Our scripture this morning is from 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is a propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. But this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. This is the word of the Lord. We are in, obviously, chapter 2 today as we continue our study of John's first epistle. He wrote his gospel, and then he wrote this epistle. Towards the end of the first century, which makes it one of the later documents in our New Testament canon, and he's writing to Christians who are being threatened by false teachers that had come into the church and were claiming things that were not doctrinally sound. So in chapter 1, we learned about a couple of those false beliefs. This group had come in and said that Jesus was not God in the flesh in the beginning of chapter 1. And then last week, in the second half of chapter 1, we learned that these false teachers were claiming that once they had come to faith in Christ, they no longer sinned. So you can see, just from those two false claims alone, why John found it important to write this epistle. He wants to warn and encourage the Christians under his care to know what they believe. In the same way that John is writing to his churches, we are proclaiming this book to you so that you will know what it is you believe about Jesus and why you believe it. In fact, one of the ways that we're going to do this in 2023, I mentioned it last week, is beginning February 19th in the evening for six weeks, we're going to be going through some of the key doctrines of our faith. We're going to be looking at subjects like God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, Scripture, man, and the church. So we're going to take six Sunday evenings beginning February 19th, and we're going to walk through what does the Bible teach us about these key doctrines of the faith. Why are we doing that? To follow what John is teaching in this book so that we will know what it is that we believe and why we believe it. So mark your calendar. We'd love for you to be a part of that. Jen Wilkin, who's a wonderful author, speaker, writer, she has this in one of her books called Women of the Word. Obviously, it's written for women, but men should read it too. It's a really good book. She says this, The heart cannot love what the mind does not know. If we want to feel deeply about God, she says, we must learn to think deeply about God. So those of you that would want to downplay knowledge or intellect of the Bible, that's not good. We want to know what it is we believe. Because the more we know about God, actually the more our affections are stirred for God. You cannot separate the two. Do you desire deeper affection for the Lord? Do you want stronger feelings of God in your life? Then meditate on His Word. Memorize His Word. Study His Word. Pray His Word. Sing His Word. And in this epistle, as John continues on in chapter 2, you are going to pick up on the word know 
In fact, the first usage of this word occurs here in chapter 2, and it's in verse 3 of chapter 2, but the word for know is used 26 times in this epistle. Lest you think knowledge of God is not important, John would tell you, you are wrong. What you know about God is how you learn to love who God is. So as we work our way through this text today that Ashley just so eloquently read. Number one, she's my wife, obviously. Jesus is our righteous advocate. And then number two, we should obey his commands. It's very simple. Number one, Jesus is our righteous advocate. And number two, because of that, we should obey his commands. Now, at the beginning of verse 1 of chapter 2, John refers to these Christians as his little children. This is not patronizing in any way. This is a term of endearment, a fatherly and pastoral tone that John is writing with here in this epistle. He is taking the role of a shepherd. Now, oftentimes when we think of a shepherd, especially in the New Testament, we are prone to think about taking care of the physical needs of the flock. And that's important. We should care about the physical needs of the flock. But there is also a side of shepherding that addresses the spiritual needs of the flock. John's pastoral nature, his shepherding of these churches here in this epistle that he is writing, is primarily theological in nature rather than physical in nature. The role of a shepherd is not just to make sure his flock is doing well physically, but to make sure that they are doing well spiritually. So John says, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. This is not a physical concern. He has a spiritual concern about these people that he's writing to. And this statement flows out of what we talked about in chapter 1 last week. When we talked about walking in darkness means that one lies and does not practice the truth. So we, as your pastors here in this church, yes, we care about your physical lives. Yes, we will be there when you're in the hospital or when you have a child. But our primary concern is actually the spiritual well-being of your soul. Because these bodies are wasting away. They're getting older. More knees and more hips are being replaced by the day. But spiritually, we can be renewed day by day by the power of the Holy Spirit. And by the way, this is not merely the responsibility of the pastors of the church. We actually, as a congregation, have a responsibility to each other to oversee the spiritual well-being of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Part of being a member of this church is that you have concern not only for the physical needs, but the spiritual needs of your brothers and sisters in Christ. In an effort to encourage more spiritual shepherding amongst our congregation, we are actually launching a podcast called uh, Conversations in the Word. And what that podcast is going to be about is discussions amongst various people within our church about how we can learn maybe or improve on how to have spiritual conversations with one another. 
While it's really important to know where Alabama falls within the recruiting rankings, what's even more important is to know, hey, what's going on in your life? What has the Lord taught you this week? How can I, as your brother in Christ, pray for you this week? How can I encourage you and your family? So we hope that that podcast is going to stimulate some ideas about how we can better, as a church, care for one another spiritually. And by making these spiritual conversations a part of our everyday lives, we are fighting against the tendency, which we are all prone to do, to compartmentalize our spiritual lives into what we do in this building. We don't want to compartmentalize it. We want it to flow out of everything that we do. So while John writes this to his children so that they might not sin, because he is their spiritual shepherd... He follows it up with this phrase, if anyone does sin. Brothers and sisters, we all sin. Now the goal, of course, is to grow in holiness and grow in the righteousness of Jesus and not sin. But the reality for all Christians is that sanctification is a work in progress and will not be complete until the return of Christ. So if we focus simply on not sinning, we are actually short-circuiting the gospel. Because in reality, in our own man-made efforts, we can attempt to not sin. We can modify our behaviors so that we won't sin. But the gospel is that the Holy Spirit changes your heart. And that you walk according to the Spirit, not according to the flesh, as Romans 8 tells us. Sinclair Ferguson, I mention him all the time, and I especially mention this book when I talk about him, The Whole Christ. He argues in that book that legalism is separating the law of God from the love of God. This means that oftentimes when we come across someone who is a legalist or a recovering legalist or thinking about wanting to be a legalist, They only see the negative deprivation of the law, and they don't see the generous, loving protection that the law provides for God's children. So when God gives us His commands in His Word, as we read from Deuteronomy 6 this morning, as we just read from 1 John chapter 2, He gives us these commands for our good and for our benefit. It's not, believe it or not, to make your lives miserable. But it's because he knows how his children can best achieve joy and satisfaction in this life. So he gives us his law to help us do that. So we have to view the law as a gift to us rather than a set of rules to somehow deprive us or restrict our freedom. But at the same time, Christians in the room, do not leave here today without knowing that even when you do sin, you have someone in your life as an advocate. Jesus Christ is the advocate for sinners. This means that Jesus is your intercessor before God. He speaks up on your behalf 
to sponsor and support you. Calvin says it like this. Christ's intercession is the continual application of his death to our salvation. The reason why, he says, God does not impute our sins to us is because he looks upon Christ, the intercessor. This is what it means for Jesus to be our advocate. And he's not simply an advocate. He is a righteous advocate. He had to be righteous because he had to satisfy the demands of the law perfectly. So he is our righteous advocate. So brothers and sisters, even when you sin, if you are in Christ today, know that there is an advocate on your behalf. And it's our Savior, Jesus. In verse 2, John talks about the idea of propitiation. It's very hard to say. I would dare you to say it five times in a row without messing up. Now, in the ESV, which is extra special version, what I read from, it says propitiation. There are other translations that use different words. If you have NIV, it might say the atoning sacrifice. Some older versions actually say expiation. Now, without going into too much of the debate here, scholars since the early 20th century have debated whether or not propitiation should be the word used here or if we should focus more on this idea of expiation. So let me define both of them for you so that you understand what it's talking about. Expiation is the idea of removing guilt and cleansing sin, which, by the way, happens when Jesus atones for our death on the cross. But propitiation means appeasing God's anger or God's wrath towards sinners. Now again, without getting into too much of the history, you can understand at the beginning of the 20th century, at least within uh, New Testament scholarship and even within the church, there was a move taking place to talk less about God's anger towards sin and focus more on this idea of cleansing sin. Why would that have been something that early scholars would have wanted to do? Because people don't want to talk about God's wrath. They think that's unpopular. So what happened was in the early 20th century, this whole group of scholars began to emphasize the grace and the love and the mercy of God, which is all true at the expense of the fact that God's wrath was poured out on Jesus for our sin. In reality, what happened in the atonement was both. God's wrath was poured out on Jesus In the place of those who repent of their sin and believe in faith in Christ alone. And as that happened, what also happened was we were cleansed of our sin and our guilt was removed. Both of those words really explain what takes place when Jesus dies on the cross for the sins of his people. To emphasize one at the expense of the other, is to really miss the true understanding of what the gospel is. But nevertheless, here in 1 John 2, make no mistake about it, propitiation is the word to use in this passage. Because God is holy, because he is just and righteous, he has to deal with sin. 
And the way that he dealt with sin is pouring out his wrath on his son in the place of sinners like you and me. So, it is very possible, in fact, it is true, that God is both forgiving and wrathful at the same time, and that is demonstrated best in the death of his son. So John says here, he is the propitiation for our sins. He's talking to his audience here. But then he says, not simply ours, but for the sins of the whole world. Now underline that phrase, the whole world. During the Reformation, the extent of the atonement became a highly significant issue. The whole world is the phrase that John uses here. But let me be very clear. John is not teaching here that Jesus' death saves all people from their sin. How do we know this to be true? Because we don't believe in universalism. The idea that just anyone is going to go to heaven when they die. We don't believe that. So John is clearly not teaching that Jesus' death paid the price for the sins of the whole world because if that were the case, there would not be anyone currently in hell separated from God. I think it's always best in these moments to use a quote by people that are much smarter than me to help us understand how John is using the phrase the whole world in this passage. R.C. Sproul gets at the heart of this when he asks this question. He says, Did God simply send Christ to the cross to make salvation possible? Or did God from all eternity have a plan of salvation by which, according to the riches of His grace and His eternal election, He designed the atonement to ensure the salvation of His people? The design and the extent of Christ's death on the cross was for the sins of his people. So the whole world in this passage is not to be viewed as anyone who has ever walked the face of the earth, but rather to be understood as all types of people, which we get from Revelation 5. That in the death of Jesus, he was dying For the sins of all of those that are in Christ who have repented of their sin and believed in faith from every tongue, tribe, nation, and people. So the whole world is best understood, really, in this passage as the whole church comprised of people from all of time who have repented of faith and believed in Christ for salvation. Now, what we need to make sure that we don't fall prey to here or fall victim to is some idea of a, li- a limited offer of the gospel. Be very careful that you don't fall into that trap. Wayne Grudem, I think, spells it out perfectly. He says, a free offer of the gospel can rightly be made to every person ever born. It is completely true that whoever will may come to Christ for salvation, and no one who comes to him will be turned away. This free offer of the gospel is extended in good faith to every person. So while the extent of Christ's death on the cross 
was for the sins of his people, which comprises the church from every tongue, tribe, nation, and people. This in no way means that we as Christians limit who we proclaim the truth of the gospel to. We share it with everyone that we possibly can. People that we interact with in our neighborhoods, coworkers, family members, and friends. It is not for us to determine whether or not that person deserves to hear the gospel. We faithfully proclaim it to all that we come in contact with. So number one, we remember that Jesus is our righteous advocate. He is the one who absorbed the wrath of God in our place for the sins of the whole world. That is the church, those comprised of people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. This is the God that we serve. And then number two, we learn in this passage that we should obey his commands. Verse 3, it says, We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. Now this verse is not teaching that one only has a relationship with God if they're able to obey all the commands of God. Our salvation is not earned based on our ability to achieve or perfectly keep the law of God, but rather one has an assurance that they are in Christ based on keeping his commands. No one in this room today is saved by their own effort, by their own achievement, or based on their ability to keep God's commands. But rather, one can have assurance as they obey those commands. So, when a person, if this has ever happened to you, if a person begins to doubt their salvation, they begin to wonder if Christ truly transformed their heart, brought them from darkness to light, One of the first places that we should always start is examine whether or not we are being obedient to what Christ has caused us to do. Because one of the ways that we can doubt our salvation is when we have sin in our life. And sin is disobeying the commands of God. And we learned last week that when one has sin in their life, it leads to hindered fellowship with God and hindered fellowship with Christ's church. John is using the obedience of the people that he's writing to as a litmus test to determine whether or not they can have assurance in their salvation in Christ alone. This is how we come to have confidence that we are walking with the Lord if we do what he commands us to do. John is distinguishing here true believers from these false teachers who not only were spewing out a false gospel, many think that what they were also doing was trying to take authentic Christians, bring them over to their side, and then tell them you can no longer have a relationship with these people. And John is saying, if you're questioning your own salvation, or if you're trying to determine if this apparent brother or sister in Christ is actually in Christ, here's what I want you to do. I want you to examine their life and see if they are being obedient to the commands of Christ. Now, the reality is, none of us in this room know the hearts of other believers. 
We can try to determine it as best as we can, but ultimately only a person knows their own heart and God. And even then, we can be deceived by our own hearts. But I think Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 10 sums this up very well when he says in verse 33, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. Now the question we have to ask is, what does John mean in this particular context when he says the commands of God? Is he talking about the Ten Commandments? Is he talking about the entire Old Testament? Is he talking about some specific command within the context of this letter? The word command is used 14 times in 1 John. 14 times in this short letter he uses the word commands. So it's obviously really important to John. So what does he mean here when he says command? More than likely, in the context of 1 John, there's a very specific command that this letter focuses on. And you know what it is? It's the command for Christians to love one another. This in no way means he's not talking about the Old Testament or he's not talking about all of the ethical claims of Christ. But in the context of this letter, command normally means how are Christians within the body loving one another? So the question for us to consider is just that. Hey, brothers and sisters, how well are we loving one another in this room? Not talking about Christians at other churches not talking about family members that are also Christians that don't attend here. How are we loving one another in this local congregation? Do we pick and choose who we want to love based on how they've treated us? Have you ever seen a brother or sister in Christ in this congregation walking towards you and you've walked the other way? Just be honest. Have you ever done that before? Do you only associate with those within our body who have similar political beliefs as you? Do you view that Republican as an enemy if you're a Democrat? Or do you view that Democrat as an enemy if you are a Republican? Do you allow the world's categories to take precedent over what the Bible teaches about how brothers and sisters in Christ are to love one another? Do we only love those that believe the exact same things that we do? I hate to bring in uh, Disney here. You've all seen Pocahontas. Children, grandchildren in the room, even adults, you've seen Pocahontas. There's that great line in the greatest Disney song ever, Colors of the Wind. I'm not going to sing it. But there's this phenomenal line, and it's actually quite, I think, pertinent to what we're talking about today. Pocahontas is singing. Again, I'm not going to sing it. You think the only people who are people, she says, are the people who look and think like you. Who's she talking to? I think his name's John. But brothers and sisters, let's not be fooled. We as Christians can do the exact same thing. We can think the only people who are people are the people who look and think like me. When John is saying in that, this passage, this is not how we draw the lines about who we love within our own body. We love those who look different. 
We love those who believe different politically, sociologically, whatever. We learn to encourage one another. We learn to be sharpened by one another. We learn how to have loving disagreements with one another. That's part of maturity in Christ. The strength of our church. Now I'm talking about First Baptist Dothan here. The strength of our church is not simply our knowledge of who God is, even though that's incredibly important, but our love for one another. So, are you loving your brothers and sisters in Christ? Are you checking up on them when they're not here? Are you encouraging them? Are you speaking truth into their lives when they need to hear the truth? We still have people in this congregation that have not come back from COVID. Have we reached out to them? Have we asked them, why are you forsaking the gathering of the assembly? That's what it means to be brothers and sisters in Christ. The opponents that John is refuting in this epistle... They were not loving the other believers. They were separating themselves, saying, those people are not the true believers. Come and join our side. And look at John's scathing words in verse 4. He says, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Every Christian is balancing the tension between being a legalist and being an antinomian, which is a fancy word for anti-law. Okay, We're all balancing this tension. The legalist falls prey, falls victim to, believing that the commands of God and keeping those to the best of one's ability is their way to God. But an antinomian, on the other hand, views the law as a threat to God's grace. The Bible is clear, however, that the law of God does matter, and at the same time, God's grace is sufficient for those who cannot properly keep it, which, by the way, is all of us. So we do not need to assume, on the one hand, that one is a legalist simply because they actually aspire to obey God's law. They actually desire righteousness and holiness and the commands of God. That's not what a legalist is. That's what a Christian is. Someone who desires to obey and pursue holiness and pursue righteousness. So we should not assume that a brother or sister in Christ who actually tries to take God's word seriously is a legalist. But on the other hand, We should not assume that one who emphasizes the grace of God is automatically one who doesn't care about the law. We have this tension that we have to manage. Sinclair Ferguson, back to the whole Christ. He says, the law was the gracious gift of a loving father, even if in itself it does not provide the power to keep it. The law which God gave Israel, was for their good. The commandments given to us in the New Testament as Christians, no longer under the Mosaic law, are still given for our good and for our benefit because God knows what we need better than we do. So let it not be said of us 
in this place that we're legalists or that we're antinomian, but that we hold that tension perfectly between the commands of God are good, but the grace of God is good when we fall short. It's not an either or. It's a both and. Verse 5, John says, Whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. John is saying that when we love one another, we most show the completion of God's work in us. Did you hear that? We most fully show God's work in our lives when we extend love to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, most think that this phrase, by this we may know that we are in him, actually is looking forward to verse 6 rather than being added into the end of verse 5. So it would actually read like this. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way which he walked. John's concluding remark in this passage brings up a phrase that we have heard our whole lives if you've grown up in church. This phrase, abiding in Christ. John's Gospel, chapter 15, the first half of that entire chapter is devoted to abiding in Christ, remaining in Christ. Abiding in Christ is partly keeping his commandments, but it's also a work of the Holy Spirit where we are in joyous communion with Christ as we navigate our lives. Who models this for us better than Jesus himself? Throughout the Gospels, he's constantly going back to his Father, spending time with his Father, getting away from his disciples, communing with the Father. Jesus models for us as Christians what it's like to abide in God. And so, we do the same. We abide in Christ. That is how we have love for knowledge of God and love for one another. To the extent that we will abide in Christ and allow His Holy Spirit to change us as we go about navigating this life. So Christians in the room, we must strive to obey the commands of our Father. We don't do it as a checklist because it earns salvation because it somehow gives us brownie points with God, we do it as an offering to God who sent His Son to be, as we learned, the righteous propitiation for our sins. But at the same time, when we do sin, and by the way, you will, you already sinned during the service, I'm sure. Remember that God's wrath was turned away from you and turned towards His Son as a reminder of God's love for you. Non-Christians, do you realize what it is that Christ has done for you? Do you realize the magnitude of what it cost God to send His only Son to die the death for the sins of all of those who will repent and believe in Christ? So my persuasion today is for you to repent of your sin and come to faith in Christ. Accept the message of the gospel. Jesus' death was costly. Just because you exist on planet earth does not mean that when you die, you will be reconciled to a holy God. That is not what the gospel teaches. But rather, all of those who can acknowledge their own sinfulness 
turned from that sin and trust in Christ alone will then be, the Bible tells us, automatically, no doubt about it, reconciled to a holy God. That is the truth of the gospel. You are not a Christian because you are an American. You are not a Christian because you were born in the Bible Belt. You are not a Christian because your father or your grandfather or your great-grandfather was a Christian or was a pastor. You are not a Christian because you went to VBS as a kid. You are a Christian because you have repented of your sin and believed in faith in Christ alone. If you have not done that today, let me urge you to come to Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you for John's letter to us. We are reminded in this passage for all of those that are in Christ that Jesus is for us. He is our intercessor. He is our advocate. He is the one who sponsors us and speaks up for us on behalf of you. And because of what Christ did and our faith in him, you see the righteousness of your son in us. And that reconciles us to you. So we praise you for the plan of salvation that you ordained before the world even began. We also pray for those who are not in Christ today. Relying on some religious ritual, relying on tradition, but they are not relying on repentance and faith in Christ alone. I pray if that's anyone in this room that your Holy Spirit will already begin softening their heart. Draw them to yourself. Give them the boldness and the courage to speak with me or one of our other pastors or another church member so that we could sit down with them and help them to understand what it truly means to be saved and to believe in the gospel. And help us as a church, all of those that are in Christ, members of this church, help us to love one another as you have commanded us to do. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.